Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we freely acknowledge before you that we know that we do not deserve your love, your grace, your forgiveness. But Heavenly Father, we praise you and we exalt you for caring about us, for sending your Son to die, that you could bring us close to you, forgive us, and make us holy, make us your people. And so this morning, Father, our hearts lift up and we praise you and we thank you for all that you have done for us. And we pray, Father, that as we live, we might be your people, willing tools for your service, for your glory, and your honor. And we pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. If you were to compare if you were to think. (laughs) If you were to think of someone who recently could not contain himself or herself, who might that be? Someone who just could not contain what was within them. Perhaps Chewbacca mom came to mind. As you're probably aware, Candace Payne put on a Chewbacca mask that she purchased for herself, and then when you move your jaw, it makes Chewbacca sounds, and she started having so much fun with this, and she lost it, and her infectious laugh just broke forth. She could not contain herself. But if you don't know anything about Chewbacca Mom, you might belong to a group Who will recognize this recent photo? LeBron James, breaking down in tears, unable to restrain the celebration seconds after the NBA Finals have ended. And regardless of what you might think about LeBron James, he is an example of someone who could not contain what filled his heart. 
when our hearts are filled, brimmed, and overflowing, when a heart is overwhelmed, it cannot contain itself. What fills a heart to overflowing might be sadness. It might be joy. But whatever it is, you will find it shaping people's attitudes and behaviors. Have you ever seen a a brand new grandma with one of those books? She'll find some way to introduce you to that new grandchild. Because her heart is filled with joy for this new life, her grandchild. As we jump into reading Paul's letters, just about anywhere, it won't be long before we find him erupting in praise and gratitude toward God. He can't contain himself. When his mind turns to focus upon God, his heart is filled to capacity, causing him to repeatedly break forth with thanksgiving and praise. And so, for example, we find him writing, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But thanks be to God. He gives us the glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What was it? What was it that so captivated and filled the apostle's heart that he could not restrain from erupting in praise and gratitude. What would it have been like to have gone on the first day of the week to an assembly of the saints to worship with Paul? You can be sure that Paul did not view those Sunday services as, oh, well, I've got to do this one more time. It's something I've got to do to be pleasing to God. No, as we look at his letters, we get insight into who he is in his heart. We get glimpses of what lies just beneath the surface that he's ready at a moment's notice to break forth with spontaneous thanksgiving and praise whenever he thinks about God. So what is it that is causing Paul to be so thankful to God? God, uh, Paul will provide us more than one reason, but certainly one of the biggest reasons revolved around what God has done for humanity. Imagine the Apostle Paul there in prison, And he turns to the amanuensis and says, get that pen. I need to write a letter to the church in Ephesus. He finishes that standard greeting that he has, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And his mind now turns to what he's about to write. 
He's about to describe God's incredible plan. A plan that existed before the creation of the world to use Christ to rescue us from our broken lives. He's about to describe this plan that was founded in love for people who are hopelessly lost. And at the time that Paul will write these things, it was a plan that had already been put into action. Jesus Christ had already died on the cross. He had already given his blood to purchase us, to purchase our broken and condemned lives. But in spite of us having been condemned and and broken, his blood would make forgiveness possible. It would make it possible for us to be holy and blameless before God. And so those who belong to Christ, those who are going to be in Christ, stand before Christ through the blood of Christ as holy and blameless. And as Paul thinks about this, it is all overwhelming. And so Paul's words spill forth, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He immediately presses deeper into the details of God's plan to rescue us. Verse 4, it was love that drove God to determine ahead of time that he would adopt us. God has acted in love toward us. It's this good news, the good news of the gospel that causes Paul to break forth in praise. We're all broken. The more we recognize this truth, the more likely our hearts are prepared to break forth in praise like Paul. Remember the story that Jesus told at a dinner party? It was the house of Simon the Pharisee, a woman with a very sinful reputation had come into the house She had an alabaster jar. She opened it. She cried on his feet. She dried his feet with her hair, and she poured this expensive perfume on his feet. This religious person, Simon, looks at all of this and has some judgmental thoughts. And Jesus says, Simon, let me tell you a story. There was this creditor, this guy who lent out money, and he had two debtors. One owed 500 silver coins. The other one owed 50 silver coins. Now, neither of these debtors had had any means, any way to ever pay him back. So he decided that he would just forgive them both. Now, Simon, which of the two do you think will love him more? Let me rephrase Jesus' question. Whose heart is going to be more filled and brimming over with love, more eager to show appreciation? Well, Simon, in response to Jesus' question, says, "I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said, 
you have judged rightly. And then Jesus proceeded to outline the huge difference between how Simon had treated him and how this woman had treated him. If we want to praise God like Paul, if we want to praise God with Paul, we can't downplay, we can't whitewash our sinfulness and dismiss it as, well, I'm not that bad. Yes, I need Jesus. I need his blood just you know, that little bit to, to get me into heaven. No, we need to understand and to recognize what sin is, what all of sin is. I would suggest that if we find ourselves thinking in the way that I just need a little help, we have no idea how our guilt and our sin appears to a holy God who acts rightly in judgment. We need to recognize that all sin is rebellion against the holy creator of the universe. And Paul realized the depth of his sin. He, he would view himself as he thought of his sinfulness and, and what he has done as, I am the worst of sinners. And so when this po- apostle's thoughts focused on God, who has forgiven him, praise breaks out. Now to the eternal king, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In addition to being forgiven, there's a second aspect about the gospel that caused Paul to break forth with praise. We do not have to earn the salvation. It's given to us on the basis of faith. Listen to Paul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But here is why I was treated with mercy, so that in me as the worst, Christ Jesus could demonstrate his utmost patience as an example for those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the eternal king, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is not only grateful for how God works through Christ to save us, he also rejoices that the eternal life that's offered is offered on the basis of faith. Salvation is not doled out to those who are good enough to deserve it. In fact, no one can deserve it. But it's given to us, those with broken lives, in need of being made new by the power of the Creator. This word faith, the word that's found in the original language of the New Testament, it's pronounced pistis, it's translated faith, it's a wonderfully rich word. Perhaps the first appropriate observation about faith is that it always involves belief. If we peek under the hood of faith, we also discover that it is so much richer than always being limited to just belief. Thus, while belief is always involved, faith can embrace and require so much more. Yale Greek and New Testament scholar Richard Hayes, when describing the richness of this word and applying it to what we read in our New Testaments, has accurately written, the noun pistis, offers a range of semantic possibilities for English translators. It can be rendered as faith, faithfulness, fidelity, or trust. 
So the, these are the ideas, the words that pistis, that Greek word, is, is conveying. And the English translator, he can grab these different words when trying to communicate what that original language expressed. He goes on, it probably does not, however, mean belief in the sense of cognitive assent to a doctrine. Rather, it refers to placing one's trust or confidence in a person. And so after giving us an idea of what the word means, he applies that meaning to our New Testaments. Faith, he says, probably does not mean belief in the sense of cognitive assent to a doctrine. Rather, it refers to placing one's trust, to placing one's confidence in a person. Now, depending on what translation you use, you will find this rich word being translated as faith, trust, or, or faithfulness. And in any particular translation, you might open up to a verse, and in yours it might say faith, and you can get another translation open to the same verse, and it'll say trust. But whether it says faith or whether it says trust, we're talking about that same idea that's being communicated to us in the English language. Let me illustrate how faith or trust always includes belief, but can also be richer, requiring more. I believe. I believe that pew can support me. You know what? I have good reasons to believe that pew can support me. You know why? I just sat in it. <laughs> I've got good reasons for my belief. But right now, I am not trusting in the pew. Right now, I am not putting my faith in the pew. Right now, my confidence is not in that pew. I'm not expressing that. But if I come over here and if I sit down, now I'm trusting in the pew. Now I have faith in the pew. If you will, now I'm believing in the pew. But I can believe some things, but there's a difference between, in this situation, just believing and putting faith in it. Or imagine another story. Imagine a small boy. A small boy has climbed up in a tree and, well, he's stuck. And so dad comes out and dad puts up his arms to his son. And his dad says, believe in me. And every single person knows exactly what dad is telling his son. Let go, drop down, I've got you. Believe in me. That's all he has to say. Or he could say, have faith in me. Or he could say, trust in me. They're all identical. And as long as the boy sits on the branch and goes, yes, I really believe that you could catch me, he's not trusting in his dad. He's not putting his faith in his dad. He's not believing in his dad. But as soon as he manages around that branch and starts to let himself off and drops down, he's trusting in his dad. He's putting his faith in his dad, and he is believing in his dad. Dad, you got to get me. <laughs> And I, I, I know you can. Faith. Imagine what would happen a number of years ago back at Niagara Falls. There were these guys who would walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, and some of them pushed wheelbarrows. Now, imagine what would happen 
If one of them got 170 pounds of potatoes and put the 170 pounds of potatoes into the wheelbarrow and push it across and comes back. Oh, the crowd's going wild. This is a great day, great show. And then he says, well, what, what do you think? Could I put a 170-pound man in here? Could I put an adult in here and push him across and, push, and bring him back? And everyone goes, yes. And they're thinking, this is going to be a great day. This is going to be a fantastic show. And they're all clapping, yes, you can. And they believe it. And then he says, who's first? <laughs> you see, those people, they really do believe. They are confident. They have reason to say, you can do it. I know you can. But not one of them has put their faith in the man. Not one of them has trusted in the man. And in this scenario, in that sense, none of them are believing in the man. And until they climb into the wheelbarrow, they're not trusting in him, and they've not put their faith in him. But as soon as they climb into the wheelbarrow, they are trusting in him, and they are relying, expressing their confidence, you can get me across, and you can bring me back. See, faith always requires belief. But just belief does not always constitute faith. Someone might ask, well, wasn't Abraham justified by faith when he just believed? This brings us to a second powerful observation about this very rich word, faith. Each setting, each scenario determines what constitutes a faith or trusting response. Over here, it involves sitting. With the boy, it involves dropping. With the wheelbarrow, it involves climbing in. And with Abraham, it involved just believing. You see, if God promises you, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. If God makes that promise to you, then in that scenario, to trust in God, to to put your faith and your confidence in God, the only way you need to respond is to believe what God has said. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And if you trust God, you believe it. And that's it. You have faith. The response of faith to a promise only requires believing the promise. And so when Abraham believed God, he responded with faith. Genesis 15.6 and Hebrews 11.11. But... If God looks at you and commands and says, leave your family and go to a faraway place that I will show you, in this scenario, to trust in God, to rely on Him, to put your faith in God, to believe in God, demands that you start packing your bags and you start walking down this road, relying upon God to show you where you're going because you haven't a clue. The response of faith to a command requires belief and action. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would later receive as an inheritance. And he went out without understanding where he was going. That was a trip of faith. It was a trip of trusting in God. Now if God says, I am going to flood this entire world, build an ark. 
to trusting God in that scenario when he's made a statement and issued a command, it demands both belief and trust. Hebrews 11:7, by faith Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, constructed with reverent fear an ark for the deliverance of his family. Through faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When we realize these characteristics about faith and not impose upon it our own maybe intuitive definition, it makes sense to ask, how does the gospel call us to rely on Christ? This is how Paul, the champion of salvation by faith, summarized it. Summarized how the gospel calls us to respond. He wrote about my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ now is disclosed and through the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That's what the gospel is supposed to do. It brings about the obedience of faith. But what are the details? How does one respond with this obedience of faith? Paul identified some of the specifics regarding how people place their faith in Christ, when he described some people who had not placed their faith in Christ. And he described two barriers, two barriers that they were not willing to overcome, that they would have to overcome if they were going to respond with faith in Christ. You see, in Paul's day, Israel had not obtained righteousness because they stumbled, because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were possible, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Israel refused to pursue trusting in Jesus as the pathway to righteousness. Although they had stumbled over this idea that trusting in Christ would lead to being righteous, Paul offers them hope if they would trust in Christ. And what Paul does is brilliant. He quotes the Old Testament to prove that even it pointed to this pathway that righteousness comes by faith. And then he will take that quotation from the Old Testament and he applies it to Christ. The righteousness that is by faith says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. You go back and look at Deuteronomy and the, and the, the context, and he's talking about the righteousness and it's what about this? Well, it's that word that is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. There's this word in your mouth and your heart that that's going to lead to this righteousness. Old Testament. And he says, you know that word that, that this is talking about? That's that message that we're proclaiming. That's the gospel. You've got to take this message of the gospel. It needs to be in your mouth and in your heart. And so he applies it. Now, Paul's purpose is not to provide an exhaustive roadmap about how to rely on Christ. After all, his readers are Christians. They know how they trusted and how they became followers of Christ. That's who he's writing to. Rather, his focus is on using the Old Testament to teach how even it requires people to believe in Christ and acknowledge his lordship to have faith. And so he continues, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Wonderful news. 
The righteousness which comes by faith has requirements. For starters, a person must believe in Christ and acknowledge him as Lord. In identifying these two requirements, Paul simultaneously identified those barriers that prevented Israel in coming to faith. She did not believe in Christ. She would not acknowledge him. But, but, hope it, but Paul extends hope to Israel. Even though she's had a history of rejecting Christ, she too can have the righteousness that comes by faith if she'll overcome these barriers and call upon the name of the Lord. For someone to call upon the Lord, that person must believe and must confess that Jesus is Lord. In Acts 22:16, Paul, who wrote what we just read, is going to recount his own conversion. And he describes how he called upon the Lord. And it's a summarized account. But he describes how he relied on Jesus in order that he might have his sins forgiven. A disciple of Christ named Ananias had told him, What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and have your sins washed away calling on his name. It was with his baptism that Paul began to rely upon Christ's death for himself, thus enabling him to be forgiven of his sins. All of this accords with what Paul taught regarding what happens when when our hearts appropriately respond to the preached word. He described an obedience from the heart to a teaching that would release us from sin. And so to those Roman Christians, Paul wrote, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed. You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were entrusted to. And having been freed from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. The moment of transformation. Slaves to sin, now serving God, serving righteousness. And and the the pivotal change there is they obeyed from the heart this pattern of teaching. Well, what was that teaching? What was that model that they obeyed from the heart? Paul has just finished describing how Christians imitate the model of Jesus' death and resurrection. By being buried in baptism and raised up to a new life that is free from sin. The person who relies on Christ in baptism dies with Christ in baptism to begin a new life. In his words, do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us. Yes, we died to that old way. And now we live for God. And he points to their baptism as being right at the heart of all of this. Now, he doesn't talk about acknowledging Jesus. He doesn't mention faith. But these are also components of relying on Christ. And while Paul communicates here how in baptism our hearts are relying upon the gospel... Elsewhere, he bluntly describes baptism as part of how we respond in trusting in Jesus, a faith response to the gospel in order to be saved and become God's people. So, for example, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ 
have been clothed with Christ. Paul, the champion of salvation by relying on Jesus, described that moment when Jesus cuts off our sin that condemns us. In Christ you were also circumcised, though this, through the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, you also have been raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. He made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. You see, when someone tells the story of God's love for us through Christ crucified and risen from the grave, when you tell the story, you must also explain how to rely. And that's why when Philip taught the Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus, the eunuch's response was, look, here is water. What's to stop me from being baptized? He just preaches Jesus. And the way that people respond to the message about Jesus and what he's done for us is, hey, why can't I be baptized now? With his confession and baptism, the eunuch began to rely upon Jesus, who had died for him. And he was saved by trusting in Christ. He had come to believe in Christ. And this brings us to the wonderful news that since salvation is offered to all, it's not based on our merit in following the law that God gave at, at Mount Sinai or, or our previous history of how we've served God, but it's based upon relying upon Christ, that God's gift is within reach of all. We need to rely on Christ. And so Paul can't contain himself and breaks forth in praise to God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. But here is why I was treated with mercy, so that in me as the worst, Christ Jesus could demonstrate his utmost patience as an example for those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the eternal king, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Paul knew he was an example of those who'd believe in Jesus, those who'd rely upon Christ crucified and who would receive eternal life. If we understand the depth of our sin and how far our sin separates us from God, then to realize that Jesus removes all of the justified wrath against us and brings us into peace with God, our Savior. Praise will break forth. If we're going to stand beside Paul, if we're going to praise God for the salvation God has given us through the gospel, we need to understand the same message Paul preached, the same message that caused him to break forth in praise, the same message that leads to the obedience of faith. We're going to sing a song now. Brad's going to lead us. I know my Redeemer lives. Jesus did die. He died for us. But that's not the end of the story. He's been risen up to live, never to die again. And so, as those who are in Christ, let's, as we, when we stand in just a second, let's praise God for what he has done for us. But this morning, if someone has any requests, we have an opportunity. Our shepherds will be down here at the front. If you need to come and speak, or if you need to respond to the message of Jesus Christ, we invite you while we stand and sing.
I know that my Redeemer lives and